0: We
1: really are living in serious times, times of urgency. I'll explain why. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the line of fire. Michael Brown, extra delighted to be with you on this Monday to start the week together. Extra delighted because a little while last night, it looked like we weren't going to make it home from Tampa, Florida. Not only were we looking forward to radio today, but every night this week, I'm doing a special class at Southern Evangelical Seminary on Christianity and sexuality, looking in particular to LGBT issues, society and the Bible every night this week, all night, and then all day Saturday. Anyway, thrilled to be back home after sitting on the plane for four hours before we left for our an hour and a half flight. Ready to take your calls, 866 truth 866 is the number to call. I have invited many a time on social media, and over the airwaves. Many a time, I've invited critics to call in. Very rarely will they call. Now, what's interesting is that everybody else seems to be able to call during these hours or when we do YouTube chats to post their questions, but some other critics are busy during these hours, broadly speaking. But if you have a criticism, an issue you want to raise, to me, by all means, do it. Because we need to sort out fact from fiction in these urgent times in which we're living. We need to get worked up about the things that we should get worked up about and not get caught up in all types of false narratives and meaningless controversy. So let us separate myth from truth today on the line of fire. Again, 866-34-TRUTH. If you have a broader question, something you want to ask me, or you've heard an accusation and you want to get clarity on it, by all means, Give me a call. I'm not put off. I'm not offended. Earlier today, I just started tweeting out for fun all the things that I'm accused of online. And, and, and let me say this in all seriousness, because this is part of the urgent hour in which we live and part of the urgency that I want to discuss with you today, spiritually speaking, as we live in this world in these particular times. But the more I was reading the crazy things that were being said some of them, as best as I could see, from people who really profess to be followers of Jesus and and speak scripture and things like that, the more I read the crazy accusations against me and against others that I know, the more my heart became heavy from God's perspective because I I thought he he must look down and and feel so grieved over the divisions within his body. I'm not talking about False Christians, people who are completely outside the faith, who don't hold to biblical fundamentals in any way. I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about if you sat down with this person and said, hey, are you a follower of Jesus? Yes. Do you believe the Bible to be God's authoritative word? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Yes. Do you believe that salvation is only through his blood? Yes. Do you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead? Yes. Do you believe, he, believe that he's the eternal son of God? Yes. And you went through the basics. Do you believe in repentance and holy living? Yeah, they they agree to all the basics, all right? And, and then they're attacking me with the craziest of accusations or other brothers or other sisters. You know, it is like they say now with the, the so many Democratic candidates running for president, like a circular uh, uh, shooting range. You know, they're all just going to be sniping at each other and attacking each other and trying to drag down each other in the interest of getting ahead as happens in the primaries. We do the same thing in the body. We don't go to one another for the most part. We don't go to one another and say, Hey, I've heard this. Is this true? If, if I don't like a particular person, if I have a bias against them, if, if I look at them more as a competitor than a friend, I'm just talking in, in carnal thinking and I hear an accusation against them, I'm probably likely to believe it because I already have a negative attitude towards them. Whereas if it was a friend, a colleague, a coworker, a family member, and you come with that negative accusation, and I hear it, then I, I will immediately, will see maybe there's another side to it. Let's investigate to see if it's actually true or not. Here, look, having been the object of lies and false accusations for decades, as happens to others in ministry, especially when you're, when you're on the front lines, having seen uh, the Brownsboro revival, where I served as a leader for four years, having seen that completely misrepresented, sometimes willfully, sometimes not willfully, things taken totally out of context, bogus reports spread, the word of one negative critic believed more than 10,000 positive testimonies and hundreds of leaders. As I've seen that, I'm sensitive to it being done to others. I'll see a video clip that seems very damning, but then think, okay, let me find out more. Let, let me dig in more and find out if this is accurate or not. And, and friends, we fail to do that. We fail to walk in love. You say, doesn't love rebuke. Yes. Yes. Doesn't love correct. Yes. Yes. Doesn't love call out false teachers. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But, we are so quick, friends, to pull the trigger. We are so quick to condemn one another. I, I think I posted 12 things so far that I'm accused of, and I did it for fun, and people have been weighing in with, with great comments as well. But I, I did it also to, to wake us up, to, to make us to understand that we, we need to step higher. And look, even if so-and-so blows it, is our thought towards them redemptive? or I'm going to get them, I'm going to expose them. In other words, if if I see somebody that's straying and and really off, all right, and maybe I have access to them, maybe I don't. Maybe I just pray for them. Maybe I can reach out to them. Maybe I have to address it publicly because I can't reach out to them or they won't hear it, whatever. Is my goal redemptive? Is my goal to see that person truly repent? Is my goal to see that person on the right path? Or is my goal to see them fall and to say, I told you, I knew it, and mock them? That really speaks to the attitude of our heart, doesn't it? Because here, you have a church split. And I didn't plan on getting into all this at this length, but but I think it's important. And it's part of the critical hour in which we live. And I'll give you a bunch more examples of why I say we live in urgent times today. And then how should we live? In light of the times in which we live, how should we live as followers of Jesus? But in short, in short, you have a church split, right? And and let's say that it, it was partly over personality, partly over misunderstanding, partly over doctrine, but there is not an absolute right and wrong. There is not an absolute, you are righteous, you are unrighteous. You are in the truth, you are in error, and often that's what happens in church splits. personalities get involved, misunderstandings come in, human weakness, etc so now you have what used to be one church all right we'll call it church a is now churches b and c all right you've gone from one body to to two and 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 Church B is terribly grieved with Church C, and Church C is terribly grieved with Church B. And neither can understand why both seem to make it. And both miraculously are able to to get into buildings because the one building is too big, so they they have other locations. It seems God provided one for, for Church B and one for Church C. How'd that happen? Obviously, Church B is in the right. Obviously, Church C is in the right. How could God be for both? And then it seems that the Holy Spirit's moving in both And new people are getting saved in both. And how can that be? Well, God looks down and goes, those are my kids there. Jesus died for those sheep there. And I care for both of them. Look, I was involved in a very public split at the end of the year 2000 between Brownsville Assembly of God and Brownsville Revival School of Ministry, which became Fire School of Ministry. All right. So I, I was the leader of Brownsville Revival School of Ministry. John Kilpatrick was the leader of Brownsville Assembly of God. And there was a split between us. And it was a very painful split. And it split our school down the middle. You had students who were living together who were now in two different schools. It was a painful, difficult time. And, and God provided for us. He worked miracles. I mean, there's no question. The only way we survived is because God miraculously helped us and went before us. And, and worked with us, and, and, and did all these. It's the only way we survived. And I remember hearing reports of the Holy Spirit moving in Brownsville and God touching people. And one night, I remember I flipped the radio on, and, and the service was airing live, and the moment you heard the worship, you could tell the Holy Spirit's moving. I'm thinking, how could that be? They hurt us. They wronged us. How could that be? That's, that's what I'm thinking. And, and the school we had founded, which was still our old facility, that went on. And God was touching people there. And I thought, how could that be? This is just me, little Mike Brown, little immature Mike Brown, looking at things through little immature human eyes instead of through God's eyes. All right? And bottom line, neither side accused the other side of of a moral issue or doctrinal issue. The enemy got in and there was a division. That's, That's the bottom line is what happened. We were exhausted after years of ministering day and night, day and night, day and night, and and relationships got frayed. The enemy got in. There was distrust. That's what happened, all right? There was never an accusation of anything of any kind beyond that, on either side, either direction. The enemy got in. And, And I wanted to sit down with Pastor Kilpatrick, who is a dear friend whom I honor and respect and love, all right? I wanted to sit down with him and go through each issue, and go through each issue. And he said, Mike, I'll sit with you, but I don't want to debate and go through issues. I'm like, well, how can we fix things if we don't go through issues? And he's like, Mike, I don't want to debate with you. And we were at an impasse. And this went on for a year and a half. And we're all there living in the same community and all of this. And we're trying to bless each other and speak well of each other and honor each other. It was a painful time. And, and, and the whole world was watching in, in, in terms of the revival was famous. And, and it was getting media coverage and all this. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm coming back from India. Right, it's almost two years into this. I'm coming back from India, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me on the plane. And one of the things he says, first was, don't be so righteous here. Don't be so self-righteous. Right, that's the first thing. And then the second thing was this. He said, my heart is for Brownsville and for fire. And as an obedient son, I want you to share my heart. In other words, the reason we both made it is because God blessed us both. The reason the Holy Spirit was moving in both of our camps was because we were all God's children and he loved us. And it wasn't a matter of one side being right or the other side being wrong in some moral sense. And, and when I reached out to John Kilpatrick and shared my heart and said, hey, I don't want to argue, whatever, we were instantly reconciled and have been dear friends again all these many years. And I support and honor him. And, and he just wrote an endorsement to my Jezebel book. And I preached for him and loved to have him minister for us. You get the point, friends. God's heart. Is for us to love one another as Jesus loved us as only that his life, and so often we fail miserably. God help us. We'll be right back.
2: Oh God of burning, cleansing
3: flame, send the
0: fire. It's the line of fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: A great big thank you to our first 111 Patreon partners. Thanks so much for teaming up with us. You help us do what we're doing this very second live video streams on Facebook and YouTube of every single broadcast. The many little, we call the rants, these little short statements that I'll make on controversial subjects or key phone calls that come in on great subjects. We'll then pull those, put them up on YouTube videos our consider this videos. Uh, These are massive productions with a ton of time and effort and energy. You're helping us do all that we are doing, pushing back against error and falsehood in the body. Thanks for standing with us. Thanks for your partnership. And we bless you every single week with two special videos, a bonus video, a special teaching about 25 minutes on a, a key fascinating topic and then our weekly Q&A chat on YouTube, at least an hour of answering YouTube questions posted exclusively on Patreon. So go to patreon.com forward slash Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown. Become one of our partners. Let's stand together. Let's make a difference. You know, by God's grace, we'll tackle the controversy. We're not afraid of that. And you know, by God's grace, we'll, we'll speak the truth in love without compromise. And yet you help amplify our voice. You help energize our team and equip our team with the resources we need to get all this done to touch more and more people. So join us today. Pennies a day makes a massive difference in eternity. Before I go to the phones, 866 truth And again, I welcome calls from critics or from those who are concerned. You may love me but say, Dr. Brown, I think you're wrong here. or I have a concern. Please share it. I I hear things with an open heart and an open mind, all right? Unless you tell me that I'm a secret agent from Mossad (laughs) or or the like, or that I'm working with the Pope and the ecumenical movement, whatever. Okay. I say in all seriousness, we're living in urgent times. I was asked to write an article, a guest article in Charisma Magazine. I publish all kinds of other things with Charisma. But an article, what do I hear the Spirit saying? What's the Spirit saying to the church? And, and I wrote this, as I pray and ask the Lord, what is the Spirit saying? I hear in my own spirit one word, urgency. This will come out in a couple months, I guess. These are urgent times, contentious times, confusing times. The, these are times of great upheaval and great opportunity. These are intense times, difficult times, blessed times. The Spirit is saying, urgency. Unfortunately, the message from all too many of our pulpits is not one of urgency, it's one of complacency, of comfort, of personal success. It's not a message destined to wake up a sleeping church, not a message destined to prepare for war, not a message designed to challenge and stir. Instead, while moral confusion and spiritual deception rises, many of God's people are enjoying a peaceful slumber, lulled to sleep by voices of compromise that refuse to confront sin, that refuse to address the culture, that refuse to talk about divine judgment friends i say these are urgent times for many reasons and and obviously i've lived with a sense of urgency as a believer for 47 years part of the way i'm wired in god but but also every day people are dying without god every day the devil is destroying lives and, and and every day we have opportunities to make an eternal difference whether we're shut-ins and all we can do is pray or whether we're speaking to a billion people uh, we're President Trump. I mean, every one of us has an opportunity to influence lives. All right. And, and for, for better or for worse. So we, we need to really ask ourselves, OK, am I living in the light of eternity? We need to ask ourselves the famous question of Leonard Gravenhill, Are the things you are living for worth Christ dying for? And we need to look at the world around us. And say, OK, the state of America today with eight year old kids getting exposed to pornography. The state of America today with opioid addictions growing out of control. The state of America today with vociferous transgender activism saying that a 15 year old boy can play on a girl's sports team and share her locker room and shower stalls with, with all of the social madness going on with the left getting more radically left. And so much of the right going right, but without the word of God as a foundation. So it, it swings too far. With the amount of division that we have in America. I mean, it's intense. It's very deep. It's very intense. I don't just within the church. I mean, the society is very deep, very intense. I don't know that since Civil War times, we have been as deeply divided as we are today. So much going on, so much deception within the body and outside of the body. These are urgent times. And I was just writing a letter to our, our monthly supporters, our torchbearers who help us with $30 or more per month. And, and I was saying again that in the last few months, I've addressed anti Semitism within the church more than in the last 47 years combined. It's not an exaggeration. We're living in urgent times. How then should we be living in the light of the situation? How should we be living? One more point, and then I'm going to take some calls. Let's say there is a disaster in your community. A, a building collapses and, and hundreds of people are badly injured. All right. Or you have a multi car wreck and, and 20 people are hovering between life and death. Or you have a hurricane sweep in and, and many people badly injured. And, and some critically injured. And you, you've got now ambulances and just carvery, whatever, a vehicle, make it into an ambulance, get the people to the hospital as quickly as possible. And you've got triage units set up. We're where right there on the site. They're treating the, the injured and the wounded and the dying and so on. Is that the time you're like, oh, i are just going to sit back, enjoy a nice cup of coffee and catch up on sports. No, it's life and death okay obviously we live our lives in this world and we may be here 80 or 90 or 100 years and we have family and we have jobs and we have vacations and there's the cycle of life and obviously we can't be living 24 7 like those would be in a, in a in a situation of emergency like that and emergency doctors working in a triage unit may be getting two hours of sleep a day obviously you can't function like that all the time and Jesus also says, come to me and rest. Come to me and find rest. But there is a place where we find rest in him, and now we run our race with urgency. That's how I live. I rest in the Lord. I enjoy the Lord. I bask in his presence. I love family time and time with friends, but I live with a sense of urgency. Friends, it's the way we have to live now in the light of eternity, in the light of the state of the world? And I just mentioned a handful of things. 866 before truth, let's go to Greensboro, North Carolina. Fail, you are on the line of fire.
4: Yes, hi, Dr. Brown. I have two questions. Um, one is probably not as controversial as the other one. The first question is: if a person has a gift, I'll say like evangelism, and they want to go out and evangelize, I know that the Bible speaks of a covering, like for instance, Paul was over Timothy. But is it truly necessary that you have to have a covering? Because when, when if, if Jesus your covering, because when Paul got started, Paul had only Jesus as his covering. He didn't come under anybody else.
1: Yeah. So, so first thing, yes, Jesus is our ultimate covering, and He's our Lord, and He's the one we need to be in right accountability to. But, but Paul, as uh, immediately, was brought into the body. R- remember. He was not healed of his blindness until Ananias came and laid hands on him. He was immediately connected to the body and then connected with other churches and then connected with the leaders. Bottom line is this. We need to be part of a body. We need to be part of a fellowship. Everyone should have some accountability in their lives. And, and the best thing is to be sent out. Now, here's the deal. All of us can evangelize all the time. In other words, every day you can win the lost. Every day you can share the gospel in your job. You can preach on a street corner. You don't need anyone to authorize you and send you out to do that. But if you really have an evangelistic calling in your life, you function best as part of a body. Because when you're part of a body, when you lead people to the Lord, now there are others that can help disciple those people and bring them into a family. Also, you have leaders involved in your life that can speak wisdom into you and can, because you're an evangelist, you see things a certain way. They might say, hey, this is great, but we need to get some teaching into these people. Or, oh, this is terrific, but you're going to burn yourself out, so here's some wisdom. So all of us should be part of a body, and all of us, regardless of our calling, should have some leadership in our lives, some, some accountability and some leadership. And the other thing is, if you have a real evangelistic gift, that will enrich a local body and a local church. So it's mutually beneficial and if you say, I'm called, but it's not recognized by others, you be a soul winner. You do what God's called you to do and God will connect you with people that will recognize your calling. All of us have had those frustrations of feeling called and, and, and it's not recognized by others. So you do your best to be humble and submit it, but then you got to go with what God's calling you to do. When you do that, God will honor that and God will connect you with people who will stand with you and will give faithful oversight to your life. Hey, stay right there. I know you had one more question. I was told it was a critical question, so hopefully we'll get to that. That's why I wanted to get to you first. But yes, I'll take questions of all kinds, absolutely gladly. But once more, if you are one of those, who's posted a comment on social media. Dr. Brown, I'm disappointed with you. Dr. Brown, I'm upset with you. Or Brown, you're a jerk for this reason or that reason. So some are respectful, some are not. And it's thousands of comments. It's, it's constant. If, if I just responded to comments, again, I've said this before, you'd never hear from me again because that's all I'd be doing 24-7. And the more you respond, the more that pour in. I try to do this in a way that's teachable, that makes it helpful that helps equip you to understand how to respond to criticism and that allows us to air issues that people are wondering about. That's part of what we can do here on the line of fire. All right, we'll get back to Bale's other question and your calls on the other side of the break and more about living urgently.
0: It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866 34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: You know what? I believe when you read the New Testament, friends, you get a sense of urgency. You get a sense of the coming of Jesus is near, and we should live with a sense of purpose and urgency. And we only have this life to live and then eternity. And, and what is this life? It's just a breath. It's here and it's gone tomorrow. It's June 10th today. And and our first daughter, Jennifer, was born on June 10th, many a year ago. And she was joking she's got to get out the calculator to find out her age. And boy, it wasn't wasn't that long ago that Nancy was pregnant? In fact, one day I got to tell you the story, the, the miraculous story of, of Jen's birth and how it happened at home and the whole bit. It, by the way, it was not miraculously pain-free. That was not part of the package this 21 rough hours <clears throat> nancy and i were talking about that today in fact but wasn't that wasn't that long ago i met nancy for the first wasn't that long ago i wasn't even say you know you just you, you keep going back wasn't that long ago we were celebrating the birth of our first granddaughter and now she just graduated from high schools on her way to college and on and on you know on the one hand life is long and one day sometimes can seem like a year and you're going through hard times but friends we got to seize the moment No, I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, but I believe every generation should live with the sense of the coming of the Lord is near. Every generation should live with the sense of, of, of the end of the world could happen in our lifetime and the pace could be accelerated. So it could happen very quickly. I believe we should all live in that way. So on the one hand, we have peace. We, we are living a life that makes sense. In other words, okay, I have to work a job to provide for a family, if I feel called to just be in full-time missions, I need support to be in full-time missions, etc. If I feel called to be a doctor, I'm going to have to be, go to school, etc. If I feel called to be a Bible translator, I'm going to have to learn the languages. If I want to have a big family, it's going to take marriage. It's going to take years of having kids and raising kids and all of that. But we live in that sense of just one life. That old saying of C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Therefore, we live with a sense of holy urgency. As we rest in the Lord and enjoy him, we also run with passion and with purpose. 866-34-TRUTH. And again, I especially invite critics to call. I just saw a comment. I don't know who it is that made the comment, but Christopher responded, call him else you are a coward here. Whoever you are, give me a call. You don't want to be called a coward. Obviously you got time to send out a note. You can call us. All right, uh, so back to Fail in Greensboro, North Carolina. Your more controversial question. Go ahead, please. I'm here. Please. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Brown. First Go ahead. of all,
4: uh, thank you for that confirmation uh, about the calling. My second yeah. question is, I truly believe that Jesus is sinless, has always been sinless. In Matthew 21, it spoke of, and also John chapter 2, in the cleansing of the, of the temple, that he made a whip and he drove out the merchants and also the money changers. I truly believe that he did not strike any of them, but I was told, uh, yesterday that he, he probably did because, uh, I mean, he was angry or whatever, but I just cannot see it.
1: No, no. Number one, there's righteous anger. Uh, there is righteous anger. You hear a case about a man abducting a child and, 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 and raping her and killing her. And you, oh, it's horrible. And you get angry over it. It can't happen. That's not, there's a righteous anger. And in fact, it, it tells us in scripture, be angry, but don't sin. So there's a righteous anger. And, and Jesus exercises it perfectly. There was corruption in, in the house of his very father. There was merchandising in the house of his very father. And that deeply grieved him. And burdened him. And yeah, he overturned the tables. And now, does it say that he struck people? No, you can make an excellent case. He drove out the animals with a whip. All right, drove out the animals with a whip as opposed to the people. Uh, but by the way, even if people were sitting in that way, they were guilty of corrupt acts and merchandising and ripping people off in the temple and you drove them out with, with a whip. Uh, to say that that would have been breaking God's law, I don't think that would be breaking God's law if God himself sent a prophet to do that. In any case, Don, no, I don't believe Jesus struck people. I don't believe he did that. I believe he drove out the animals with a whip and overturned the tables, reflecting God's heart and God's anger. A perfect example of Jesus bearing the heart of the Father. 866-34-TRUTH. Again, one more invitation. Not sarcastic in this, not in a demeaning way. You've got an issue with me. Call me. I'm trying to help people here because I I got sent another video. Dr. White said, he said, have you seen the latest, this crazy attack? I'm not going to mention it on the air. It's like, well, if people believe that, then ask. Go ahead and ask. Of course, there is a problem, though, which is when you answer truthfully and people take your truthful answer as a lie, then you can't really help them. When you answer truthfully, you know, where were you on the night of the 4th? I was in London preaching. Ah, right. That wasn't you. That was a double of you actually preaching, because I know you were at that very moment leading a secret mission to Mars to, to look for anti-Semitism on Mars. Like, yeah, how can you help people then? But we do our best. We do our best. Eight six six three four Four truth Let's go to Toronto. Joseph, welcome to the Line of Fire.
5: Hi, hello and good afternoon. How are you? Thank you for having me on the radio broadcast today. Go ahead. Yeah, thanks. So um, I've actually looked at your Twitter account right now, and you said uh, we have to underscore the seriousness of our times in which we're living, and uh, you also welcome critics on your show as well. So if there's one thing that I can ask in particular, it would be concerning um, catechism, so to speak, to the ecclesia, or uh, the layman or lady of the Church. So I think it's easy to say in today's time, in contemporary era, that um the so-called pronounced culture or the prevailing culture, so to speak, societal norms um, are very different than what may um, our children or our high school students learn in, um, in public school or in uh, religious schooling as well. So um, what would you say is the best way to have a sense of catechism or catechesis or maybe exegesis within um, actual scriptural biblically, biblically sorry, when we talk to lay members, whether they be part of the various Protestant branches or um, Messianic Judaism, perhaps, that you speak of, or uh, the other apostolic
1: churches. Yeah, so, so Joseph, it's an important question that you raise. If you are raised, say, in a Reformed home, right, so you're Protestant, Presbyterian, Calvinist, you might have grown up and been taught uh, the Westminster Confession, or like my friend James White, the London Baptist Confession, or, or Children's Catechism, or something like that. Uh, if if you were way raised in the home of of uh, where John and Charles Wesley were raised and mentored, especially by their mother Susanna, uh, you were you were taught very systematically. You were taught Bible. You were, you were taught certain scriptural truths and principles. If you were raised uh, perhaps in a, in a Catholic home or or Greek Orthodox home, and you had or Lutheran home, you had confirmation. You had certain things you had to learn. In a Jewish home, your bar mitzvah, etc. Uh, but in a lot of our contemporary Christian circles, especially charismatic circles of which I'm a part, you don't really have any type of catechism. You, you don't have any type of systematic teaching of children. So uh, it's, it's a broad question. Obviously, you can't reinvent the wheel 100 times over in each different setting. In a Messianic Jewish congregation, because there's a bit more emphasis on teaching, There'll be more discussion as a family with the weekly reading of Scripture, the Torah portion, which will then be tied in with the New Testament text as well. So, Joseph, I, I can only say this. You point to a serious need in the body today, namely systematic discipling of believers in general and systematic discipling of children where they are taught certain propositional truths and then we're. There are even apologetics questions that are raised where parents and families sit and talk together. So at the very least, at the very least, all right, if you're not part of a tradition that has a form of teaching that you can follow, okay, I learned this from my parents and I'm going to teach it to my kids, all right, and, and then they'll teach it to their kids and hear the texts and hear the verses and hear the confessions. If you're not part of something like that, then all the more does it behoove you to live out Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'm going to read the relevant verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall buy them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes, which traditional Judaism takes literally, by the way. I take, could well be a figure, figure of speech there. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, traditional Judaism takes that in a more or less literal way. And, and verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Others translate that as repeat them to your children. Uh, others repeat, uh, uh, translate as impress them on your children. But one way or another, we must on a regular basis be seeking to disciple our own children and our own families in biblical truth. And it's important for every congregation to have a method of discipleship, either by incorporating people into small groups where they grow together or by having a new members class or something where people are taught the fundamentals. Because if that doesn't happen, you, it's kind of an anything-goes type of environment. Joseph, there's probably more to your question, but that's as much as I can answer it here. Thank you, sir, for raising it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Jamie in New York. Welcome to the Line of Fire.
2: Hi, how are you, Dr. Brown?
1: Um, Doing very well.
2: I saw you talking for the first time at the Columbia University a long time ago.
1: Maybe ah, okay. Yeah, we we did a few outreach lectures there and then some Christian meetings. Yeah, that that goes back quite a few years. Well, thanks.
2: Right. And I noticed that sometimes people in the audience have certain problems <laughs> that um, it's quite perplexing, I mean, because of the position you have as some sort of a leader within the Jewish Christian community, right? At any rate, um, it was a mixed crowd. It wasn't just uh, Jewish people There were uh, other types of people uh, yeah and that was the goal to
1: to get to a mixed crowd yeah okay
2: um however i i do notice that no matter what background somebody comes from there's always some extent of a cultural bias whether you're jewish christian muslim whatever it is i think that's Mm -hmm. because of the way we grow up and um we always have to resist that but that wasn't my question i I had a couple of questions
1: i tell you stay right there we got a break coming up We'll come back and, and get your most important question first, in case we only have time for one. Let's start there, we come back. Rusty Royal, stay there, we want to get to your calls as well. And thanks for your YouTube contributions. If you're watching and you want to stand with us, just click on the dollar sign and you can stand with us right there. It takes a split second on YouTube. Thank you.
0: It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866 34 Truth. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
1: Welcome back to The Line of Fire. I've been talking today about living with a sense of urgency. In light of the Times in which we find ourselves in America, moral, spiritual, cultural confusion, great division. So much happening in the world around us. And the fact that we only have one life, we should live with urgency, passion, purpose, sense of rest and assurance before God. But yes, friends, with urgency, and yet from so many of our pulpits, there's a message of complacency. There's a message that emphasized comfort and avoid conflict. It's not the way we take up the cross. It's not the way we follow Jesus. All right, back to New York, uh, Jamie. Yes, your question, sir. Please go ahead.
2: All uh, right, uh, yeah. I just want to put it in the proper context. I myself have experienced anti-Semitism when I was younger. Okay, for um, support supporting Israel. Okay, I don't. At this point in my life, I don't really take sides. But mm-hmm. uh, be that as it may, um, my my. And I've never read your books. I know you said you address. Um, questions uh, for objections to jews for believing in the messiah and you have criticisms um in your book so i, I have to put that in the context because i've never read your
1: books aren't so I, okay i shot it that's right go ahead um
2: <clears throat> but i do have some sort of an issue with you when it comes to um being too uh, biased against making criticisms now i do agree with you about uh, never tolerating any kind of violence against anybody that comes from a jewish background or or uh, Is it Talmudic Jew or anything like that? However, by the same token, my question is, when we do that, and again, never tolerate violence, okay? And uh, don't incite it either. But when we do that, don't you think there's a problem that there could be deceptions not only for for Jews?
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. In in other words, if if, if 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 we want to... Well, let me me finish
2: my question. Go go ahead. ahead. If you're you're not not, um, able to criticize Talmudic Judaism. And if you're not able to criticize Christianity either, I mean, there is a deception that Christians are already in because they think that if you follow the Sabbath, they think that if you, if you observe Passover... Right, right. Here. So just, just, just yeah,
1: hang on, just in fairness to, to a, a bunch of calls I still want to get to, all right? So I, I know you could expand on that. But here's the point. Read Volume 5 of Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, which is an entire volume, over 300 pages, of my critique of Talmudic Judaism and why I reject the Talmud and why I reject Talmudic authority. And I absolutely, I wrote an article the other day about ultra Orthodox Jews, uh, harassing Messianic Jews in Israel. And the government needs to clearly stand against that. And Christians need to send a message to Israel. And when I spoke at a conference, a pro Palestinian anti Zionist conference in May of last year, in in Beit Jala in Bethlehem, uh, I was there as a pro-Israel speaker, but I sat and, and listened to grievances and concerns Palestinians had, and said, I'm, "Yeah, I'm aware of some of these, and I believe you're right in some of these cases, but it's it's your demonization of Israel as a whole that makes it difficult." So I 100% support fair criticism of Israel, fair criticism of my fellow Jews. I 100% support self-policing within the church. In fact, most of my books, if you have to pick any one subject, the majority are books that I've written as a believer to us as believers, criticizing us like playing with Holy fire, a wake up call to the Pentecostal charismatic church or whatever happened to the power of God is the charismatic church slain in the spirit or down for the count or hyper grace or how saved are we or the end of the American gospel enterprise and on and on it goes. So I totally agree with you. If we're like, no, no, you can't say a word against you. No, no, you can't say a word against the church. Of course we'll fall into all kinds of deception and we'll justify anything. And, and that's dangerous, terribly dangerous. My issue is false accusations. My issue is demonizing of a people and misrepresentation. That's my issue. So my issue is, is not fair criticism. My issue is misrepresentation, demonizing, and spreading lies. Hey, thank you for the call. I'm sure there's more to talk about. Eight six six three four truth. Let's go to Rusty in Tennessee. Thanks for holding and welcome to the Line of Fire.
3: Uh, hi, thank you. Um, so here's here's my question. Yeah. Um, in the Torah, there is a uh, there's a line that says uh, you uh, you can know you gain the knowledge that a prophet is false if the thing he predicts does not happen. Right. Um, so what that tells us is, is we can't just have anyone walk up to me and say this is from God. Therefore, uh, just just believe it. It's gotta it's gotta happen. So my issue being in the book of Daniel,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, Daniel starts talking about uh, Greece in Daniel eight uh, conquering Persia and how there's going to be these four mini empires that come out of them and out of how one of them there's going to be this evil dude, really exceptional evil dude. In Daniel 10 and 11 and 12, he starts elaborating on that time period in, like, ridiculous detail, and it becomes immaculately clear he's referring to the uh, wars waged between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Finally, we reach a guy that sounds like he's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes as uh, his life almost perfectly matches the description, except for the end part where it says the world ends. Uh, he launches a third and final invasion of Egypt, and uh, the dead resurrect at that time. So my question is, if he looks like and sounds like he's talking about Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the world ending at that time, why yeah. wouldn't we want to say that that's what he's saying?
1: Yeah, great, great question. Wonderful question. Thank you for raising it. And by the way, there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that prophesy certain judgment and seem to tie it in with end of the world, or seem to tie it in with an even greater conflict, and that doesn't happen. And yet, the other things they said happened. So, how how do we understand these? Uh, there, there are two ways, Rusty, and we have to be fair to the language in which they're spoken. All right. For example, the Re- the Book of Revelation is spoken in apocalyptic language, so it speaks of events that are happening in terms of you know the sky falling, basically. Now. Is it literally that that's going to happen? That they're literally going to be what look like stars falling from heaven and literally this type of calamity on the earth? Or is that apocalyptic language, the way the prophets would describe momentous events, but in end of the world terminology? So the one possibility is that Daniel is speaking in apocalyptic language and therefore not everything is to be interpreted with exact literality. The other is this that just as we know that there is a first coming and a second coming with Jesus, and they are they are blended together in many a passage so isaiah fifty two thirteen through fifteen speaks of his great exaltation after suffering, but doesn 't tell us the long period of time in between, or zechariah nine beginning verse nine talks about the messiah coming meek and lowly riding on a donkey, and then his authority ultimately being this massive authority, and that, that is, is over a period of, of many generations, even of a, of a couple of millennia, that in the same way, there are prophecies that have a partial fulfillment at one point in time. In other words, Antiochus Epiphanes, as, as you mentioned, uh, so in like the 160s BC, and a final application for the one of whom he serves as a prototype, namely the one called the Antichrist, who will do his works of evil at the end of the age and with his destruction will be the resurrection of the dead. We see the same in Matthew 24 that the disciples ask a threefold question about the destruction of the temple, the end of the age and the second coming as if it's all one question. They're really two or three separate questions. Jesus answers them all as one and they are hence woven together. So this happens with a lot of prophecies that they declare a, B, C, D, E, F, G, but A, D, A, B, C, D, E happened here, and F, G happened much later. It's not uncommon, and therefore we say, okay, there's a, there's a type and, and there's the, the fulfillment. There's the prototype and there's the, the final reality of it. And ultimately, because people who read the same Bible you're reading and experienced the same events of which you speak said that Daniel was a true prophet or that Matthew recorded things accurately in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, that we trust that the unfulfilled parts are still to happen. They got all this other part exactly right, therefore we're confident the rest will happen. Or some of it is simply apocalyptic language. Uh, Maybe we can pursue this another day. I'm looking at the clock, time is short, so I want to grab another question or two. But feel free, Rusty, if my answer does not satisfy you to call in a few weeks from now and we'll pursue this. All right. Sound like a deal? 866-34-TRUTH. There was a question on YouTube from Will about 1 Corinthians 15 and where it says that that the son will be submitted to the father at the end, that God may be all in all. I believe the great revelation of eternity is the revelation of one God. In, in, In other words... God who is eternally one, and yet is three in one, God who is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who reveals himself to us most fully through Jesus, is ultimately one God. And that will be the great and final revelation as we worship one God forever and ever. Now, will we worship him distinctly as Father, Son, and Spirit, Will we worship him primarily through the sun? Those are things that can be debated. But the great revelation, revelation 22, it tells us that his servants will see his face and serve him, not their faces and serve them, but see his face and serve him. That I believe is what first Corinthians 15 is speaking of. Hey friends, let me just do my check here on Patreon and see. All right. We're still at 111 as we were earlier. Join our support team friends. You'll be blessed by the unique bonus videos we provide for you, too, every week. And you'll be blessed by helping us reach millions more people with new cutting-edge media. And you'll be blessed by God because you're partnering for a righteous cause. Go to patreon.com forward slash AskDrBrown.